Acts 14. While you are there, uh, in Revelation 22, verses 8 and 9, uh, John has been excommunicated to die, essentially, on the island of Patmos when he says this, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book, worship God. And right here, the angel clues John in and then all who ever read this on the sole purpose of life, worship God. God created the universe, everything in creation, so that it would show forth and shine his glory. And then he created humanity so that we could reflect that, so that we could show the magnitude of his glory and appreciate it in our worship with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we worship. Our issue, though, is that we don't. In the first of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, God says, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. He writes this because there are other gods before him. Otherwise, he doesn't need to write this. Since we've been created to worship, we will worship. And we will either worship the one true God or God substitutes counterfeit gods. Something is going to capture our hearts in worship, and it will become the most important thing in our lives. There's no way to worship nothing. We were designed with worship as part of who we are, so we are going to ascribe glory to something, and at all times, we are doing that. There's not a moment in our lives where we are not worshiping. The question is, what do we do when we have other gods before God? Because we will, and we do. With all of this in mind, let's read Acts 14. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derb, Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycaonian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas, called, Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, 
they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Adelia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that we have your word. The God of the universe who created the heavens, the stars, the planets, the earth, the trees, the mountains, the oceans spoke to us. What a wonderful grace that we have, Father, and so we thank you for that. But we pray now as sinners, we admit and confess that we, we cannot read your word alone. We need you to come and help us and guide us and show us exactly what it is you have for our hearts this morning. We know that your word does not come back null and void, so would you do a work in us by it? Each one of us in this room, Father, we need you. Would you show us you? Would you change our hearts by the good news of the gospel? And in that, God, if there's anything I say that is contrary to you, that is against you, that is opposed to what you have for us, I pray that you would help us to all forget it. And if there is anything in this room that comes to our minds, that a thought about you that is wrong, God, we pray that you would remove it and that you would show us a true and worthy thought of who you are. Let it be high that we cannot attain it. Let us only attain it by faith. And God, we pray all of this in the only way that we can through the righteousness that we have in Jesus. There is no other way that we come to you and yet before the throne 
of God above, we have a strong and perfect plea. God, would you work in us and help us and guide us? We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We either worship God or we worship God's substitutes. There's no way to worship nothing. We were designed with worship as part of who we are, and so we will ascribe glory to something. We will worship something, and at all times, we are. The question is, what do we do when we have other gods before God? Because we will, and we do, but God in his grace has given us Acts 14. We see Paul and Barnabas come to a city that worships idols, and by them, we see God's help for idol worshipers. We see it in two parts of one command. Turn from the worship of vain things to the worship of a living God. Turn from the worship of vain things to the worship of a living God. And so what we're going to do is look at uh, to identify the idols in our hearts and see their folly. See their emptiness so that we might repent, so that we might turn from them to the true God who is worthy of our worship. So let's start with number one. Turn from the worship of vain things. Our passage begins with uh, Barnabas and Paul going to Iconium to preach the gospel, and immediately they're met with both opposition uh, and support. Literally, the city divided on them. Half supported them, half wanted to kill them. Uh, welcome to the kingdom. With any kind of obedience in Christ, it's going to feel a lot like this. It's going to be a lot like this. It will be difficult when people you love, maybe even your closest friends or family, reject you for the gospel you believe in and proclaim. And we're not far from it being, uh, from being severely persecuted because of it. One day soon, uh, it will be fully illegal. It's already illegal in some ways. And that's not to mention our brothers and sisters in Iran, in China, in Afghanistan, who are killed. But whatever it is, whatever God has called us to, will be glorious in part because of the men and women who stand with us and say, I'm with you. In Iconium, men and women are coming to faith, moving from death to life by the gospel. And yet at the exact same time, Paul and Barnabas are now having to flee for fear of being killed. And so they get to the next place and preach the gospel. In the next town, Lystra, they come to a man who has never walked in his life. And Paul somehow mysteriously sees that he has faith and tells him to stand on his feet, that which he has never done before. And the man sprang up and began walking. What a beautiful picture of the gospel. And this should be a story of thankfulness to God for what he's done for his grace to sinners, but something goes wrong. They start to worship Barnabas and Paul, thinking that they're Zeus and Hermes, Greek gods. This was their normal worship experience. They have a Zeus temple, we see it, uh, with a priest of Zeus at the entrance of the city where they would worship statues of Zeus. But now... From the perspective of these men and women, the man behind the statues, he's come to life. 
He's right here in our midst. We can look at him. We can touch him. So, of course, their hearts are so excited. The gods have come to us in the likeness of men. And so the priest of Zeus comes running from the entrance of the city all the way out to the gates, bearing gifts for the crowd so that we can all worship together. It's a wonderful time for them. But Paul and Barnabas know the depth of what is truly wrong here. They rush out into the crowds, crying out to them, why are you doing this? We are men just like you. We have the same nature as you. We are sinful just like you. We are not gods. And I can see, guys, I see the excitement that you have on your faces. And I'm sorry about this, but I do have good news. That you should turn from these things to a living God. And what Paul says is there's a God who is not us, who does not share our same sinful nature, who is alive He's not a statue. And this God has created everything that the gods you worship seem to control. Zeus is the God of the heavens. Gaia is the goddess of the earth. Neptune is God of seas. Apollos is the God of sun. You have gods of trees, war, wisdom, sex, wind, but they're confined to statues. There is a living God who created the heavens, who created the earth, who created the sun, the trees, everything. Turn from these vain things to a living God. What are these vain things? They're idols. They're empty. They're false, counterfeit gods. In ancient times, throughout the cities, there would be temples just like this one we read about, uh, set for worshiping all the gods. And they would have statues of gods lined up outside for people to worship. And they would have a giant statue upon entering uh, the temple that would have been the centerpiece. And they would hold services much like we do now and give praise and worship their God. It looked a little something like this. This would be the temple from the outside, uh, on the inside. And then lastly, you can see he's still a statue. Thought that was funny. Nobody? No. The architecture was beautiful. Uh, the theology was misinformed. We don't see this anymore uh, in our culture necessarily, but we don't because we don't so much go to a temple to worship a statue, but we still worship idols. The issue is why it's so hard for us to see it is because it's in our heart. Idols are created things that we tend to love instead of God. Idols are good things that become ultimate things. Whenever we have a choice between honoring God as the God of the universe, giving him glory, worshiping him and sin, and we choose sin, it's not that we are simply sinning. We're worshiping another God. It's not that we are simply sinning. We're worshiping another God. As though this will be the thing that will finally bring us joy and happiness and it'll finally save us. Even if we don't say it out loud, out loud, we believe it. Otherwise, there's no reason to sin. If sin didn't hold some sort of joy or comfort or pleasure or control, there's no reason that any of us would turn to it. But there is a small amount of tangible, right now, joy, comfort, and control, and we don't have to wait on anyone. We can go and get it. 
But just because an idol brings joy does not mean that it's not still an idol. This is idolatry. Because any other way than God's way is a fabricated way, created by human hands, and we exchange the glory of God for the glory of a meal or an image or a drink or a fill-in-the-blank our task is to identify them because we cannot turn from that which we do not care to see. We won't repent of anything we don't see as wrong. And you can see in our passage that it's a hard work. It has to be God's work because even though they are saying to them, no, listen, we are not gods. We are just men. They couldn't get the people to stop worshiping them. If we desire to change, if we desire to turn, we must first identify our own idols. So God must show us. Romans 8, 5 through 6 says this. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. The reason why we set our minds on anything is because we are looking for ultimate satisfaction. Those who set their minds on the things of the flesh think that satisfaction and joy and salvation are found in things of the flesh. But the opposite of that is true. Those who set their minds on the things of the Spirit think that satisfaction and joy and salvation are found in things of the Spirit. So then the question that comes out of this is, what are the things you set your mind on? What are the things that you set your heart on for satisfaction, for joy, for salvation? If it is not the things of the Spirit, it is an idol. To set the mind on the flesh is to put your mind and your heart on something, even a good thing, besides Jesus Christ as your functional Savior. Anything can become an idol. Self, career, family, success, material possessions, control, comfort, power and influence, food, drink, physical appearances, sex, human approval, financial security. And paradoxically, even though all of these idols are empty and vain to worship as a God, they hold great power and control over us. They enslave us. They make us obey their every whim. They promise over and over again, this will be your fulfillment. If you come here, if you do this, this will be your fulfillment. And they promise it over and over again, but it never comes. Once we have come to believe that something will really make us happy, something will really bring us joy, we can't help but do it. We can't help ourselves. We must follow our God. And so that's why idolatry is deeper than all of our sins on the surface. Idolatry is deeper than looking at pornography. Idolatry is deeper than overeating. Idolatry is deeper than fits of anger or impatience. Those are all sins that come out of an idolatrous heart. We do these things, we sin to fulfill a deeper desire in our heart. And so our idols lead us to sinful actions. This is why the issue of sin is not my sin necessarily. 
is the heart behind my sin. The Bible does not consider idolatry to be one sin among many. Rather, idolatry is always the reason why we ever sin. Why do we ever fail to love or keep promises or live unselfishly? Because there's something besides Jesus Christ that we feel we need to have in order to be happy. We wouldn't lie unless something, unless something, human approval, reputation, power over others, financial advantage, we wouldn't lie unless all of those things were more important and more valuable to our hearts than the grace of God. It's silly to realize and to think about, like, oh yeah, this is empty, but it's real in us. This is why, going back to Jeremiah, uh, our hearts are deceitfully wicked. The worst thinking, the worst uh, possible piece of advice is follow your heart. Makes no sense. In the Old Testament, a man named Elijah uh, called out nearly a thousand different uh, idol worshipers. And he said, let's put our gods to the test. Uh, Let's gather up some bulls, some wood, Uh, We'll make an altar and we'll uh, call upon our respective gods. And whichever God answers with fire and burns up the altars, well, that's got to be the true God, right? So he's putting them to the test. They agree and they say, yeah, what you speak of, you speak of it well. And for hours they cried out, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. After about six hours, Elijah Uh, mocked them, saying, maybe just cry louder, Uh, for he is a God. Maybe he's thinking, maybe he's relieving himself, maybe he's on a journey, perhaps he's asleep and needs to be awakened. And so they get really mad at that, and they cry louder and louder, and they begin cutting themselves, blood gushing from their body. This was part of their worship experience. No one answered. No one paid attention. There was no voice. This is the folly of our idols. It's that the joy and comfort and pleasure that we're seeking in them will never truly be found in them because they aren't there. We're searching for salvation in our idols. We're looking for the the food to fulfill us. We're looking to the drink to make us feel better. We're looking to pornography to finally make us happy. But all of us know well, salvation is never there. The idols are vain and empty. The meal ends and we want more and more. The bottle's empty and we want more and more. On the website, we keep scrolling, keep scrolling. They're just mirages, promising an oasis, but it's nothing. Think about the sins you've committed this week. Whether it be lust, gluttony, failure to worship God, anger, gossip, impatience, jealousy, whatever it is, there are deeper motivations for every single one of them. Rooted deep into our hearts. What are yours? Why deep down did you do anything that you did this week? What root idols do you have buried down deep into your heart? What do you tend to enjoy more than Christ? What will will you resolve today to think about these? Not so much as, I've got to fix this sin issue. 
That happens really easily. But the heart behind the sin issue, what are my idols? At this point, you might be thinking, I've got like 12 of those things driven down deep into my heart. I need help. First of all, never be surprised at the sin within you. We are sinners. Be surprised if you find no sin. Second of all, you're worse than you know. God is just gracious to sinners to reveal to them sins in his timing, in his manner. He doesn't show us all of our sins at once. But thirdly, there's good news for sinners, but only sinners, which brings us to point two. Turn from vain things to the worship of a living God. Look back at verse 15. Paul and Barnabas crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, but we bring you good news that you should turn from these things, these empty, vain idols, to a living God. How is idolatry uprooted from our souls, our hearts, and our minds? The secret to change is not found in any steps to dismantle an idol or a three-idol stomping practice that every believer should know. Simply what happens when we try to curb sin is we mow over the weeds. There's something deeper. How do we change our hearts? Psalm 135 Verse 15 through 18 says this. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Idols are dead, empty, vain, pointless. And all who trust in them as their functional savior, as their God, are just like them. Empty, dead, vain. So there's no such thing as a self-help idolater. There's no such thing as an idol worshiper coming to grips with his idolatry and trying really hard to get rid of it, working on it. The hard part is we might conquer the sin. We might conquer that out on the surface. And it makes it look like we fixed the heart. But no dead person can revive themselves. When, when I ask the question, how do you change a human heart? I don't know. I can't do that. I can probably maybe curb a sin. My heart is still sinful. How is Paul suggesting to them that they turn from idolatry? What does he say? Turn from these things. We are, we are men. Why are you doing these things? We are men, just like you, with like nature of you. But we bring you good news that you should turn from these things. How, do, how is Paul suggesting to them that they turn from idolatry? By good news. By the gospel. If all sin is rooted in idolatry and idols are empty saviors, then unbelief in the gospel is always the major root of every sin. The gospel is that I am saved. 
and I'm not saved by my own righteousness and behavior, but because I am in Christ. And so all of my failures, all of our failures in actual righteousness come from a failure to rejoice in our legal righteousness in Christ. All of our failures in growth in this faith in Christ come from a lack of orientation, a lack of beholding the good news of the gospel. And so we turn from idols not by just seeing that idols are vain and empty alone. We must also fill that part of our hearts with worship of something else. If we deroot this thing that we worshiped, we're still going to worship. We have to replace it with something better. And this is the greatest news in the universe because there's good news for idolaters. Because what Paul turns to is there's a living God. These idols that you are worshiping, they are dead, but there is a living God. And if you replace the idol in your heart with a Jesus, he is a living God. And so Christianity is not turning from fun activities to killjoy activities, although legalism does make this case. It's this. Turn from the worship of empty idols that are enslaving your heart, bringing you to their level of death, to the one true God who frees your heart unto a greater joy and satisfaction that we could ever have in an idol. Idolatry is a grievous sin. It is turning away from the beauty and the love and the joy of Christ. Therefore, we cannot complete the process of change until we turn from our idols to something else, to Christ. He offers what we've been seeking elsewhere, but better. How do we melt the human heart by looking to Jesus rather than bending it temporarily by fear in people? The key is worship. We will only be free through worship, through an appreciation, through a rejoicing, through a resting in what Jesus has done. That is what dethrones the idol from our hearts. We rejoice, we thank, we praise, we enjoy God until the heart is sweetened and softened and rested in Jesus and it relaxes its grip on anything else it thinks it needs. In every moment of our lives, we are pumping out idols to worship. It is part of our fallen state until we are glorified, until we are with our Father. But more importantly, in every moment of our lives, there is a creator who desires to be known, calling for us to turn from these vain idols to him who can truly do what it is these idols promised. And so he gives us his son. Every single thing that we search for in our idols, in our functional saviors, in our gods, the ultimate fulfillment of it is found in Christ. And Jesus was the God who came down in the likeness of men. And he didn't ask for any sacrifice. He became the sacrifice. Whatever embarrassment there is in seeing our hearts uh, and their allegiance to these empty idols is crushed when we behold that the living God 
died, became death in our place, on our behalf. No other God would love such unlovable creatures. And no other love would reach this far. If you noticed, Baal never answered his prophets. But the rest of the story, God answers. In a drought, they'd been in a drought for three and a half years. They go and get water, pour it all over the altar. And still, God catches everything on fire. The water is dried up in the fire. God answers. God came to live as a man to seek and save the lost. That is the answer to our idolatry. That is the answer to our heart. That is how we turn from these idols. So that means that idolaters like us have a hope. And it is not found in any action, anything that we can conjure up. And it's not necessarily in curbing the sin issue out on the surface, but in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross where he secured for us a spot in such a family as this. And so when we sin, we are free to look deep into the cavern of our hearts and find the idol and we can bring it to light and we can replace it with worship of our God. Because in Christ, we have a strong and perfect plea. And so, what else matters? This is how the power of idols are crushed by the freedom that we have in Christ. And one day, one sweet day, it will all be over. God has begun the work of melting our idolatrous hearts to give us a heart of flesh. And one day, that work will finally be finished. Isaiah 30 talks about this day. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. We know that. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity on, lo- on earth and the water of affliction on earth, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left, then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images You will scatter them as unclean things and you will say to them, be gone. One day, the work will be finished completely. Until this day, when we can scatter and crush every and destroy every idol that lies in our hearts, we have the good news of the gospel that we can turn from them. Knowing that we have a true and better way in Christ Jesus. And our response ultimately is to rejoice and to worship. There is no greater joy than knowing that our names are written on his hands, graved into his heart. That's how we turn. Galatians 4, verse 8. I just wanted you to listen to it. Formerly, when you did not know God, 
you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods, idols. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary idols of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? When we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. And because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son and a daughter. And if a son and a daughter, then an heir through God. The good news of the gospel is that we had no fight on our own to remove any idol, but Jesus came into it. I said, I will start this work. And so really, all our work is just beholding the work that was done. And so to celebrate this good news, we're going to take communion together as a family. And as we do, we are acknowledging the gospel again as our only hope in this fight against our heart. If you're a believer, you're welcome to the table. However, if you are an unbeliever, uh, or if you are in unrepentant sin, idolatry, then I ask that you remain in your seat. As 1 Corinthians says, you would be eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. But you are not without hope. If you are in unrepentant sin, you are worshiping an idol in your sin. It is folly. It is empty. It is vain. But the true and better substance to what you are searching for is found in a relationship with your Father. If you are a true believer, then you have everything you could ever need in one place. Your relationship with your Father by the substitute of the Son. Believe again. Turn from your idols. And believe again in your salvation by grace. If you're an unbeliever, you already know. You know the folly of this world. Nothing truly gives what it promises to give. You see it. You feel it. But there is a living God who desires to be known by you. He desires for you to turn to him so that he can give you what your heart is searching for. But there's no way to work yourself in. It is a relationship based on faith, trusting in the work of Christ alone to secure this relationship. So if you are an unbeliever, would you believe? For all of us, here is our prayer in this time. Father, I admit that I have idols plaguing my heart at all times. Would you, by your grace, remind me of the good news of the gospel, that I might turn from the worship of these vain things to worshiping you, that you might be glorified and that I might find joy. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. When you're ready, take your time to pray through what God has given you in his word. And when you are ready, uh, the elements are at the back of the room. Grab them, bring them back to your seat, and we'll take them all together here in a minute.
one of the lines that we were about to sing in worship uh, embodies what we were about to do. It says, For God the just was satisfied to look on him and pardon me. The wrath of God was laid on Jesus Christ. That you and I, though we worship other idols, though we worship other gods as if there were any, he saw fit to come to us in the likeness of men, to redeem us from our emptiness in our idols. This is our great hope. This is our living God. This is our Savior. All of it is possible because on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel that not only are we saved from an eternity of being punished for our sins, rightfully so, we are saved from that by your grace and mercy that we did not deserve an ounce of. Not only is that true, but you go even further to say that everything we were searching for in our idols, in the worship of empty things, you will give us the fullness of and the substance of in Christ. You have created us. You have designed us to worship. And not only did you take away the fact that we did not worship you at all, but you gave us someone to worship that will not ever fail us, that will always be what he promised. What a joy, what a grace, and we do not deserve a second of it. And in our fight against our own heart, would you give us hope that we can bring it to light because it's already covered. And help us, God, to replace the worship of these things with the worship of you. Help us to rejoice. Help us to find our ultimate joy and satisfaction and hope in you. Never let us stop seeing the emptiness and the vainness of our idols. And let us always find it in you. Just as we saw, it is a work that only good news can do. And so we pray now that you would do it. Revive us, God. Restore us. Restore everything in us that is dead and weakened because of our worship of idols and free us to worship you. 
Help us now to sing out to the only God who would love idolaters as us. Help us to give and ascribe all glory and praise and honor to you and you alone, God. Help us now. Build us up now. And we pray this not in our own righteousness, but by the righteousness given to us in Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.